Welcome to Bourbon in the Back Room. Pour yourself a shot and let's talk South Carolina politics. South Carolina's government does too much, and because it does too much, the things it does, it does poorly. Uh, Our government should do a lot less than it does, and the things it does do, core functions of government, education, law enforcement, roads, so on and so forth, it should do very well. All right, listeners, family, friends, we are back for another episode of Bourbon in the Back Room, the only South Carolina podcast where you'll learn what's really happening in the state legislature and across state government. Joel Lurie, my co-host of the podcast, we are going into the fall. Uh, We're just a couple months away from the legislature starting up and things are are heating up. What are you hearing out there on the street? Well, first of all, Vincent, uh, we've gotten a lot of nice comments. I've got a great note in from your honors class they said no, uh, what nice. a gr- you, wasn't that a great time doing and, that in and front just, of them just you know it was so great daniel rickman's doing a great job yeah. as our mayor but i think people really enjoyed what they enjoyed most was not the mayor no disrespect not me or you but hearing some of those bright students they're years. brilliant joel every I t- i've told you and i tell everybody when my class starts at the beginning of every year i'm just so thankful and excited and optimistic about the future people get down on the future but if you sat with these 11 students for an hour you would be really hopeful. Well, let's hope we keep them in South Carolina. Vincent, <laughs> fireworks this week in Columbia on the issue of judicial reform. Lots going on to break down here. Let me play a clip for you from WIS-TV, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about it because this one is uh, getting a lot of traction. And, and Joel, I think we'll have a guest to talk about this later on the show. Absolutely. Nine solicitors are calling for this change. In this letter, they sent Monday to the Speaker of the House and the Chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who's also a lawyer and sits on the screening panel. Right now, this 10-member committee called the Judicial Merit Selection Commission, or JMSC, screens judicial candidates. They determine who's qualified and select up to three candidates for each seat, from which the entire General Assembly picks. Six JMSC members are legislators, and they're also typically lawyers, while the other four members are appointed citizens. The solicitors are now calling for those six lawyer legislators to immediately be removed from the JMSC and be replaced with lawmakers who have other jobs. They write this would go a long way toward improving the judicial selection process and restoring public confidence in our judiciary. The solicitors pointedly call out one JMSC member by name, House Democratic leader Todd Rutherford. They write Rutherford has been central to a number of recent scandals that have eroded public confidence in our state's judiciary and have created an appearance of undue influence derived from the considerable power granted by his role in the JMSC like his representation of a convicted murderer who was secretly granted an early release from prison this year, which Rutherford helped coordinate with a since-retired judge. Rutherford denies any impropriety. If they would like for the Speaker of the House to take me off of judicial merit selection, they should at least, they should at least show where I've done something wrong. They cannot. All right, Vincent, so, and, and I was reading um, different articles about this, texting with a lot of friends of ours, and we're going to ask our guest about this because he's been pretty outspoken about yeah. the need for judicial reform. Um, but it appears, again, you know, I remember us reporting on this because, you know, we are members of the press now. Yeah. I remember us reporting about this last year, and we're like, nobody's paying attention to this. Something I think is changing, and I think it may not be number one on the list of public priorities but I think the mood, the sentiment is changing down at the state house to do something. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I still don't think it's a top issue. I don't think that, I still think the public really doesn't care about these internal machinations. I think what gave it a higher visibility was what that clip was, though, where uh, the um, prisoner was released early in a situation that just frankly didn't look uh, 
uh, open. It, right. it looks secret. Uh, and, and I think our Supreme Court, who, by the way, is elected through this same mechanism as when people talk about changing it, our Supreme Court said this was not done correctly and it needs to be overturned. Um, but I think that drew the public's attention. I think it didn't look good because, frankly, it wasn't good. One of the lawyers is on the screening and committee. And then one of yeah. the lawyers who was involved was on the screening committee. Now, I will tell you that that could have happened with lawyers who were not involved in the right. legislature. The fact that this member, Representative Rutherford, right. who's on the screening committee, just exacerbates the and problem. And that was Rutherford's point, but that doesn't change the perception, and the perception is this is screwed up, this shouldn't have happened, and therefore we're going to listen to these arguments that have been made about how to change things. Again, I don't think that's a, a narrative that the public is, you know, it's not high on their priority list, but it definitely broke through. It breaks through, and it kind of fits into something Senator Harputlin has been talking about, something our guest has been talking about, judicial reform, bond reform. Right. I think the public is shifting a little bit, paying attention. We'll see what happens. Vincent, today is Thursday. Um, we have the results of the special election to succeed our friend, the late Senator John Scott, and former city council member and mayoral candidate, Tamika Isaac Devine, uh, won the Senate District 19 primary. She got 53%. Pretty strong uh, showing. Uh, yeah, show. yeah, 53%. Um, Representative Cambrell Garvin um, ended up at about 45 46%. And then there were two other people that maybe combined for a point. Uh, this is a Democratic district, right. so I don't think anybody expects that to change. Um, I'll tell you, in looking at their fundraising reports, um, Senator-elect Devine probably outraised Representative Garvin by about a two-to-one advantage. Yeah. And I guess in getting votes out in a special election where maybe 6% of the— Very few people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting about politics. A year and a half ago, Tamika Devine's political career was somewhat in the ground, yeah. right? Yeah. She lost a tough yeah. race. Now she's in the state Senate. Listen, in, if you don't believe that happens, ask Henry McMaster. He's run for every office in South Carolina, won some, <laughs> lost some, and he'll be the longest-serving governor in our history. How about ask Abraham Lincoln? There you go. And he, yeah. Yeah, there, so it, From it, a losing Senate candidate to the President of the United States. Absolutely. So congratulations, Senator-elect Devine, and also to Representative Garvin, because I can tell you um, they both ran good a people. great race. Good a, people. Great good people. people. Good, good people. All right, Vincent, um, we've had her on the show before, and um, Superintendent of Education, Ellen Weaver, you know, she's been in this fight with the Library Association, and we talked about it, and now she wants to pull— library book approvals away from the local school districts and make that all um, done at the State Department yeah. of, of Education. Here's where that stands, and then I want to get your feelings about it, because if our listeners don't know, you were chairman of the K-12 <laughs> subcommittee, okay, in addition to teaching an honors class. Um, and being friends with Joel Lurie. <laughs> absolutely. Your claim to fame. But um, the State Board of Education has a vote in November Ultimately, this proposal will have to get legislative approval. Right. Do you think something like this, where you're taking local control away, makes it to the finish line? Well, one of the things I always loved about my Republican friends was they always, always griped about returning power to the people from the federal government to the state level. But then when it got to the state level, they wanted to take the power from the people from the local level and put it at the state level. So, yeah, I could easily see it happening. The question is, should it happen? You know, education is a state responsibility. Uh, there's a powerful argument the state should set uh, the parameters of what happens in public education. Um, but I think, again, and also there's this, you know, really social controversy about uh, what's going on uh, uh, in local schools relating to uh, um, sexual education and what's being read in the libraries. So 
Who knows what will happen? I don't think this is a burning issue for the public. Maybe in the Republican electorate, but the public public at large doesn't care. Um, Unless you're affected by that. But right. at the end of the day, I'm going to say I don't think it makes it this year. I don't think it makes it. Yeah, I don't I, think it's a high enough priority. I don't think yeah, the public's I don't, I don't know it. that you want to pull that local. I mean, yeah. that's why you have a local school board. I agree. You know, if you don't like yeah. your school board, replace your school board. Although I will say, you know, People don't know who their school board members are. I'm not convinced that having school boards is the way to run schools, but we can save that for another day. All right. Fair enough. We will save it for another day when I am not your co-host. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Vincent, um, Alan Wilson um, in the news this week. In fact, um, I've got this radio show, Health Matters, that we do every yeah. Monday, and I've got Attorney Great General show. Wilson. Yep. Thank you. We're getting a lot of, lot of. Uh, I don't know that we could call it the number one show in South number Carolina. Number one health podcast. The number one health radio show in South Carolina. All right, we just ranked it. But anyway, he um, he has joined the lawsuit with 42 other states um, that are suing social media about the toll that it takes on kids, the addictive nature that it that it has for children. Um, he's also suing some of the um, firefighter foam companies that created this foam. You're involved, I think, in the second case, not the first one. Talk to right. us about that. Because, you know, I mean, Alan's an old friend of mine, and yeah. he he's very busy right now. He is. Um, so, Alan, uh, Attorney General Wilson, who's been on the show, uh, I'm really proud to work with them to represent the state uh, against chemical makers who created what we call Forever Chemicals. One of the types is the firefighting foam. It was concealed from the public and from the users that this the dangers of this chemical. What is a Forever Chemical? It's a chemical that basically is created uh, by these chemical companies that doesn't disappear uh, like most chemicals would over time. So its danger is not abated. Its presence does not uh, dissolve. It does not go away. And these chemicals particularly uh, very much are attracted into groundwater and, and, and flora and fauna of the state. So I think what's important for, for the public here, though, is that the Attorney General is taking a really aggressive stance on this. Um, you know, he's not just sitting back for the to the corporations to do whatever they want. He's taken a, a really aggressive stance. And I think that's similar to the case I'm not involved in, which is the social media cases that he is, has launched. And I think he's, he's again, being very aggressive uh, in taking these companies on, which, which is not the typical playbook in the past. No, and, and, but I applaud him for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, haven't, not a lawyer, so I wouldn't understand all the details of the case. But I do think social media bears some responsibility for some of the things that happen with kids, yeah. for some of the hate that is spread. Yeah. I mean, so well, what we found, and I was involved in some litigation against Juul, the vaping manufacturers. Yep. Yep. A lot of times, these companies specifically target children. That's really the the emphasis of what the attorney general is saying in this case, um, and and also. Joel, you know, the attorney general took on uh, the opioid manufacturers a few years ago, and the state saw hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars returned to the state to deal with that opioid epidemic and, because he did that. And that is really topic number one on our radio show. I think there's yeah. been a renewed interest in yeah. that with these documentaries like Painkiller and other that are on Netflix. So, um, yeah, kudos to Alan Wilson. We've got to get him back on the show. Definitely. He's still my bet to be the next governor of South Carolina. All right. So we'll see what happens. Vincent, before we end Bourbon Briefs, um, we can't go a session without talking about our two presidential candidates. Um, third quarter um, fundraising. It looks like former Governor Haley is on the rise between her campaign and other sources. She raised $11 million. Um, Senator Tim Scott raised slightly under $6 million. I understand he has pulled his pack, has pulled some of his ad buys. He may be throwing it all into Iowa to see if he can, um, you know, Breathe some new oxygen to his cam into his campaign, 
But just this morning, I was watching the news at five o'clock while I was catching up with some work. Yeah. And I saw this commercial produced by the Never Back Down pack of Ron DeSantis. And I want to play it for you and then get your reaction. Nikki Haley's record on China as Governor Haley rolled out the red carpet for Chinese companies. They want to do business in South Carolina. Our home, your home. She gave them millions in tax breaks, subsidies, free land. A Communist Party-owned high-tech company got 200 acres, five miles from an army base. I think China is really in good faith doing quite a bit. They are a really great friend of ours. Nikki Haley, questionable judgment, dangerous on China. Never back down is responsible for the content of this advertising. Okay, Vincent, you have a funny smile on your face. No, okay. Um, Nikki Haley getting attacked on China. Well, I mean, the problem for her most likely is that actually is a fairly accurate ad, which we don't normally see in uh, in political campaigns, certainly not presidential campaigns. Does the public care? I don't know. They might. I don't know. Maybe, um, you know, we'll learn more from our Republican friends. But, you know, she's going to see more coming fr- from Ron DeSantis. Uh, I think it's interesting that he's running in South Carolina. That means he thinks he can make a play here. But, Joel, none of this matters because Donald Trump, unless he is unable to run for president, is going to be the nominee. He's going to win South Carolina. You talked about the money that Nikki Haley has raised and, and Tim Scott's raised. You know, that's them on the phone talking to their big donors. Donald Trump doesn't do that. And he raises many, many times more than them and just gets the money in. So, and then he spends it on his legal fees. And he sends, but so what's the end game? Why are they doing this? I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head is that the end game, I mean, I think we've always thought maybe Tim Scott wants to be vice, vice president. president yeah. you know, and Tim, as you and I have discussed, is an extremely nice guy. Um, I think he represents our state fairly well in the U.S. Senate. But he's never, I mean, he, you know, everybody had a lot of high hopes for him. And he just never seemed to yeah. get past. I mean, he's, a, I he's, a nice, his, he's too nice a guy. I remember, Haley's on her best when she's attacking. That's why this adds a problem for her because she's being attacked. Yeah, Tim I Scott's a nice guy. And Tim, when Tim Scott's first meet the press, not meet the press, but when the press was talking about abortion, he kind of stumbled all over yeah. the place. So he he probably goes back to the U.S. Senate. He'll be fine. Um, I think Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, I think it's a three-candidate race. Yeah. And they're waiting to see if Trump. Is able to run. That's or, the only reason. Or is reason DeSantis and Haley having a fight to see if either one of them will be the nominee in four years? Well, that could be it too. I that, mean, a lot of things happen though. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There's no question about that. Who knows? But what I do know is this: we've got to pay some bills. Yes, we do. Hear from our sponsors, and we've got a really great I'm guest. Excited. I'm excited to bring this guy on Bourbon in the back room. We'll be right back. Vincent, I'm here with my friend Todd Augsburger. Todd is the president and CEO of Lexington Medical Center and one of our great sponsors of Bourbon in the Backroom. Todd, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Todd, you know, when I think about Lexington Medical Center, and I know so many people that work there, they all seem to have such great pride in what they do, and they're all such professionals. How do y'all make that happen? Joel, I'm glad you said so. I'm so proud of our nurses and doctors. Our our staff are local folks taking care of their friends and neighbors, and, and your experience and your time is as important to them as it is to you. You mentioned the word local. Am I correct? Are y'all the only local hospital system here in the Midlands? We're the only local independent hospital system in the Midlands of South Carolina. Well, thanks for what you do taking care of our community, and thanks for being a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Backroom. All right, during the break, I'm here with my friend, Stephanie DeFries. Stephanie is the vice president of the group and individual division of Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, one of our favorite sponsors. Stephanie, welcome back. Thanks, Joel, for having me. You know, a lot of people think about Blue Cross, and it's sort of synonymous here in South Carolina with health insurance. 
But uh, you do a lot more than health insurance, don't you? When people go to retire, what happens next? We have an entire area dedicated to Medicare products, and we can help them not only from early on with individual coverage, when they're employed with group coverage, but then when they're ready to retire or turn 65, we can offer a Medicare plan as well. So from the time somebody is born to the time they retire and go on Medicare, they can choose Blue Cross. That is correct, yes. Stephanie DeFries, thanks again for joining us and thank our friends at Blue Cross for being a sponsor of Bourbon in the Background. All right, we are back from that word from our sponsors. And Joel, we've got a great guest. We talked about him earlier. Uh, that we were going to have a, a very good guest today. He's not been on the show before, but I understand as a dedicated listener, and I will say listeners, that he um, stepped up above most of our uh, listeners, and certainly Thomas McElveen, <laughs> who walked in with that plastic bottle of, uh, of whiskey because he brought us four bottles uh, of beautiful rum. We'll talk a little bit more about that, vocal. Uh, but we've got a great friend uh, who was elected to the state senate in 2016, is a businessman, uh, in York County, South Carolina, is a father uh, and has really made a name for himself over the last seven years in the South Carolina Senate. Welcome to the show, Wes Clymer. Joel, Vincent, good to be with you all. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Wes, we always like to uh, let our listeners know more about our guests before we put the, the grill to them, before we put you under uh, the fierce questioning. But, but seriously, just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then, and then I want to talk about your local uh, uh, distillery as well. But, but tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we do that. I'll tell you something. Before he does, yeah. this is some really good it's shit. It's very good. I mean, it's, it's really good. good. I mean, it's very good. Sleep, all right, we'll just go straight to that. Sleeping <laughs> Giant Distillery. Tell yeah. us about it. All right, so two brothers, Patrick and William, started this a couple years ago. And um, they distill rum in Rock Hill. They got a really cool uh, distillery in beautiful downtown Rock Hill. And the one we're sipping on... Um, is bourbon barrel aged rum. Bourbon barrel aged rum, very appropriate for it's, the show. It's Keep, actually delicious. It is really it would good. Cheers, be good over cheers, some ice Wes. cream. Here. Cheers. Cheers. So I went, right. and saw, went and saw William, told him I was coming on the, the biggest podcast in South Carolina. <laughs> and he was all excited the about Southeast, but yeah. we'll just. <laughs> yeah, and the, I mean, you got listeners in Japan, I think I've heard. Yes, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Patrick and William, thank you. Sleeping Giant, this is really good. We normally toast a little bourbon. We're having rum. Actually, I think it'd be good over some vanilla ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You're probably right. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be for later tonight. Tell our listeners about, about yourself, um, how you came up, uh, why you decided to get in politics, and a little bit about what you're doing now. I think our, our listeners, they think, you know, Wes, that state senators are just state senators. They just magically appear there, and then they're there all day long, 24 hours to 7. That's not true. Tell our listeners they a little bit about They think everybody's you. independently wealthy like you and Brad Hutchins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, uh, I grew up in Rock Hill um, back when, as my, my cousin, who now lives in New York, says, back when Rock Hill was all dirt bikes and kudzu. Yep. And, yeah, it's uh, a different place today. Rock really Hill has, has grown a lot, but grew up— um, working in my granddad's hardware store on Cherry Road in Rock Hill and uh, went to Furman. And um, now my wife, Marty, and I have five children between the ages of four and 12. That's amazing. So the house is always quiet and calm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everything's real like, tidy. I got to go to the Senate. I'll be back in three days. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? I'm a financial advisor. You're so. a financial advisor. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, I don't know why I thought you were an attorney. 
Okay, but you're a financial well, I'll, I'll choose not to be insulted. Yeah, right. Right. Thank you. <laughs> He's where the money really is. You're not you a mean, lawyer legislator. And of course. So you you can be on judicial screen. All right, yeah, there, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're going right. to talk about that. And, so, and who do you work with? You in business for yourself? Yeah, we. Um, our firm is with LPL now. Uh, Sean Bennett, Senator Sean Bennett, who's a friend of the show, is yeah. a financial advisor That's as right. well. Yeah. So y'all have like kind of a, a, a little click there, financial two, advisor. Two of us in the Senate <laughs> to... Um, you know, one of us on judiciary, the other on finance, keep all the lawyers in check. Absolutely. So and when, when the, the math question comes up. And the lawyers all come and ask you about their investments. Like, right, yeah, hey, yeah, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> Sean and I actually are good friends. We were sweet mates when I served and um, just think the world of him. And, and it's great to have you on because I've I followed you. We met once or twice when I was having lunch downtown, but I've heard a lot of great things, fun things about you. You know, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of issues we disagree on, but I hear you're a straight shooter. You bring a lot of... Um, levity to the to the chamber you're easy to get along with what was it like coming in the senate because i want to go back to 2016 the year you ran was the year that i retired and 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 i remember i mean you beat a guy that everybody liked wes hayes probably didn't have an enemy in the world one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet and you pulled off, I think, what some people might consider a son, somewhat stunning upset. How did that happen? Yeah, I'm among the people who considers that a stunning, <laughs> a stunning upset. But uh, no, I, I grew frustrated with um, the the pace of action in the Senate, uh, observing it from afar. I mean, it seemed to me at the time that the the House passed a lot of really good conservative policy, good reforms, and those things just went to languish or die in the Senate. And so, um, you know, as you said, my, you know, my predecessor. Uh, Wes Hayes is a is a fantastic guy. I mean, our families attend the same church. I'm a I'm a big fan of his as a as a man. Sure. But we we have some disagreements around policy questions. Sure. So I went and met with him. Uh, we had breakfast. I asked him about you know why this, why that, so on and so forth. Was um, unsatisfied with his uh, responses and uh, decided to run. Knocked on thousands of doors and uh, got a little boost from uh, Vincent's favorite governor. <laughs> yep. And um, and the rest is history. How much did you win that race by percentage-wise? It's like four and a half, five, something like that. 52-48, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And tell our listeners it, that it, district it was, encompasses which areas? Well. So it um, it has changed some because redistricting was just concluded. So uh, the district now is a good portion of Rock Hill, all of Lake Wiley, the town of York, and some rural portions of, of York County. Just really an exploding area. And Wes, one of the things I think that was most impressive to me when you came in, Joel talked about this race and and um, our good friend who, who you uh, beat in that race. Um, but he really, and you, really, after the race, um, treat each other well, work together. How did that happen? Well, so, I mean... He, he is a great guy. I have a lot of regard for him. Uh, we just have policy disagreements. And so, you know, to the extent that it was possible, we attempted, and I, you know, like to think we well, certainly did our best to keep the race focused on issues. Where do we have differences? Why do those differences matter? And we didn't get personal. We didn't lob insults. It was um, as courteous a political campaign as as I've witnessed in in really some time, and I frankly wish that that more of our politics mirrored that as opposed to um, just the the chaos that we see everywhere else. And of course, Wes Hayes is currently on the Commission for Higher Education. Yeah, he's doing the chair, a, doing right a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, he, he was a big education yeah. proponent. Yeah. I think he, you know, was chair of the ethics committee. Right. Um, served with my dad. Great guy. All right, Wes, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. I heard this this morning. I was listening to a podcast. Um, Chuck Todd was interviewing the guy that wrote the most recent book on Mitt Romney. 
And I really want to get this book because I've always been fascinated by Romney's career. But Romney used to meet new people coming into the U.S. Senate or new, new, new governors when he was head of the Governors Association because it's an interesting take he had on his unimpressive response from Sarah Palin when he asked this question. But I'm going to ask you this question, which is people come to public office with a vision, with a purpose. What would be your vision or purpose? South Carolina's government does too much. And because it does too much, the things it does, it does poorly. Uh, our government should do a lot less than it does and the things it does do, core functions of government, education, law enforcement, roads, so on and so forth, it should do very well. But because government is um, so so stretched and policymakers are so stretched and they have their hands in so many different pieces of the economy, very little of what government does, it does well. And so shrinking government making it more transparent, making it more understandable to voters would be a kind of core philosophy of uh, a lot of legislation that I've worked on and um, where I spend a lot of my time. And tell us how that's been. You're in an overwhelmingly Republican state. You yeah. control really every lever of, of, of statewide power and overwhelming majorities in the legislature. I say all that to set the question up for you, which is how has that effort gone? Where have you been successful? Where have you had roadblocks? So... Um, I would say there are definitely more uh, more items on the L column than the, than the W column. And as you all know, I mean, it, it is tough. That's is, part of the process, right? It, it, I it, mean. Is, it is tough to move something from, you know, an idea in your head right. to a bill to a law. Right. Um, and that's a good thing. I can. It's a true, that's a truly conservative, not in the what we say as yeah. conservative or liberal today, but like conservative in the sense that we change slowly. Edmund Burke. Sense of, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Burkean. Good. Sure. Yeah. And, um, but... Y'all are both really familiar with the Senate's rules, right? So before, um, I guess it was the rules changes in 2020, a single senator really did have a veto over anything that happened, sure. right? A single determined senator with the capacity to, to you know, stand in the well and, and introduce thousands of amendments could stop anything. Well— you know, we want the Senate to be a place that can serve as a check on, you know, sort of the majoritarian impulse, right. but it shouldn't be a full-blown counter-majoritarian institution, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't thwart the overwhelming will of the people as expressed by a supermajority of their elected representatives' votes, right? And so changing the rules of the Senate uh, in January of 21, I, I think has been one of the Will, will likely be among the most consequential things that I took part in. And what uh, was my, that change? Explain, yeah, explain to the listeners, listeners change. in a simple way, if you yeah. can. Yeah, so again, in, in you know, prior to 2021... Um, Any senator in, could in, put what's called an objection on the bill. You put an objection on the bill, and then if the objection's overcome, it gets up for consideration. You can still you know, introduce 9,000 amendments to the bill and uh, tie the Senate up from, from February through September. Kind of a really easy, people know what filibuster is. In your mind, you think of somebody has to stand at the floor and they have to hold the floor forever and they can't go use the restroom. And so it truly is a will contest. But that that ability to introduce just hundreds of thousands of amendments really was almost a way to just have almost a fake easy filibuster. Is that right. fair to yeah. say? Yeah. And so uh, the rules have changed now such that the you know majority leader can, or in really anybody can can make a cloture motion, it's typically the majority leader, um, that, that sets either a definite time to vote, puts some guardrails around the number of amendments, how much time can be spent on amendments, so on and so forth. And that change allows for three-fifths of the Senate, 
to, you know, that's, that's the math. If three-fifths of the Senate wants to do something, it can do something, okay. right? So it is still, it's not a simple majority, as you would find in the House or in a, you know, full-blown, you know, majoritarian institution. There is still the supermajority requirement, but now the Senate, when it decides to do something, it can do it. Whereas previously, you, know, you could have 80% of the Senate that wanted to do something, and it could be thwarted by one out of 46. So what I used to do, because Vincent was my desk mate for 12 years, I would just say, somebody make a point of order. I said, what's that mean, Ben? <laughs> All right, so Wes, I have a question for you. Um, you know, we all come in with the expectations what it's going to be like to serve. And then you get here. Were there any big surprises for you? Because you've now been here um, going on eight years. Next yeah, year. And, and let me just put a little bit of a twist on that as well. You were in local government? No. So you were you had no experience so, really in government coming in cold like that. Right. When my final semester in college, I did uh, an internship on Capitol Hill. And, and who was that with? That was with Patrick McHenry. And at the conclusion of the internship, he hired me. Is that the guy who's the acting speaker? He was. The How acting. cool is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, anyway, so um, I, I was going to run for speaker, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you don't have Why to not? be a member of Congress if this thing continued on. This shit Why show, not? I was ready to go, but they elected us. I speaker. mean, if only they knew. That's and I'm exactly. You, you could have solved this yeah, weeks ago. You learned while you're in D.C. a lot of things we shouldn't do in South Carolina. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, sure. Yeah, you. You. Everything in D.C. is theater. I mean, the subcommittee meetings, even when nobody's paying attention, that's theater, too. Um, and that is in, in sharp contrast to what I consider to be pretty serious substantive policymaking and yeah. debates that happen in subcommittees. In, did that in surprise you when you were elected? Yeah, it really did. Interesting. Yeah, okay. it did. And then um, on the on the favorable side, I mean, there have been, been some unpleasant surprises sure. along the way. But on the favorable side, um, everybody treats one another, for the most part, with, with dignity and respect. And Has that gotten better or worse? Um, I, it depends on the day. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, it kind of depends on the day and the issue, but I would say in the main. Still there. It, it, yeah, in, in the main, that that culture is still dominant. And I think Vincent and I have talked about that on the show. I mean, yeah. you got to remember when we came in, we had the, the honor to serve with people like John Drummond, Kay Patterson, uh, um, Glenn McConnell, right. John Land. Just real characters. And, you know, and, but it yeah. was always... Senator, and even when you disagreed, you'd laugh about it afterwards, and you'd go out and have lunch, you know. And I don't know, but it seems like um, watching some of the dates, particularly on the House side, I can't say this about the Senate, but but it, it feels it's, a little bit. Senate still still as boring now as it was when you were. Yeah, there. yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So exactly. Um, even since you've been there, you've seen a, a, a dramatic increase of Republicans, one party control. Yeah. Has that been a good thing, bad thing? What's bad? From my vantage point, it's a great thing. I mean, we're uh, the the Senate has, you know, in the last session, repealed the certificate of need. It's a major public policy win for shrinking government and letting the the private sector invest and innovate. Um, I know y'all's favorite policy is school choice, but I'm delighted <laughs> to share in your that joy vouchers, that, yeah. that school, the school choice was enacted um, in chairman. But you know, if you're going to move on a bill like that, the way y'all did it this year was not highly objectionable, even to p- people like me that are big public school people. Because, yeah. you know, you've put some guardrails on it to see how it, it, it plays out. We had our, our mutual friend Greg Henry on to explain it one day. And, you know, I, I, I mean— Things change, okay, right. and there's a sense of frustration with some people in their public schools. So putting some initiatives out there 
to see where they go. It's not the end of the world, you know, absolutely not. So what else, though? Um, You know, the first year uh, Chairman Peeler was Chairman Peeler of the Finance Committee, uh, $2 billion tax cut. It's a pretty significant win. Um, secret talk, talk, let's stop there for a minute, because I think if you ask most of our listeners, they would say, what are you talking about? I'm not seeing any taxes back in my pocket. So explain to them what that tax cut was made up of. So it's a billion dollars in permanent reduction in the uh, of the income tax rates, and then a billion dollars in a one-time um, rebate. rebate. Yeah, check. I think I got a check. What was it, like 50 bucks? No, that was the first one. Yeah. For a lot of people, it was in the neighborhood of five, six, seven hundred dollars Okay. I and think Becky must have counted that. <laughs> <laughs> or a lot of people just got on their taxes. It wasn't necessarily a Correct. Bit, yeah. yeah. And but but you know, the, the government has run um, you know, billion or multi billion dollar surpluses for, for multiple years in a row, which tells you that the people are overtaxed. Those tax brackets that were reduced. Yeah. Talk a little bit more if you can about that to our listeners. So I knew I should have no, you're right. going to give me a pop That's quiz right. on the specific. Yeah, but it, but they're it, just scaled down over time. I believe it's off the top rate, about eighteen percent off the top. Okay. By yeah. the time it's fully implemented. All right, Wes, um, you have been very outspoken. And the, by the way, there's an interesting friendship that I've seen evolve between you and an old friend of ours and a former guest on the show, the Honorable Dick Harputlian. Yeah. You guys seem to find yourselves aligned on a lot of issues, um, and both of y'all have been screaming from the hilltop. On judicial reform. Yeah. We ran a story earlier, um, and, and I've seen many stories with your name in it and quotes from you about the need to reform the Judicial Screening Committee. And just this week, and as we noted in our bourbon briefs earlier, that you had a group of solicitors that signed a letter calling for reform. Give us your take on that, because Vince and I have talked a little bit about it on the show, and, and you know, it doesn't appear to be one of those hot-button issues that if you've Pick up. You go to a cocktail party and, and people are ranting and raving about it, but it does feel like it's getting some traction. So talk to us about it's that. It's good there, and I think it'll be something that the general assembly simply has to address in in twenty twenty four. But I mean, I think what we're you know your starting point is what do you want? Right. right? What, what do you want is equal justice under the law, right? And right now you don't have that if you're standing opposite a member of the Judicial Merit Selection Commission in a courtroom. You don't have that oftentimes if a senior member of the legislature is representing your opponent in a courtroom. And so to the extent that equal justice under the law is undermined by the system we have in place for electing judges, we should remedy that. This should not be a controversial matter. And what what does that look like? So the current composition of of Judicial Merit Selection Commission um, is, you know, three almost always lawyer legislators from the House, three from the Senate, and then four at large, you know, non-legislator, but usually attorneys. And they decide which judges, which judge applicants uh, the General Assembly gets to vote on, right? And because they let me, have, let me just get that perspective for yeah. our listeners because we always like to explain a little bit of process yeah. here. So what happens? You, you have ten people apply to be yeah, a judge. Ten, ten people apply for a judge. They go through the screening process, and the purpose of this committee is to whittle it down from ten to a maximum of three. Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay. Currently, right, that's what it's going. Says. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. And if anyone's non-qualified, then they're disqualified completely. Yeah, which is kind of a problem with the J. I mean, JMSC has a has a history of finding people non-qualified who, on paper and by all accounts, should be found qualified. Hmm, okay. JMSC has gotten a lot more um, aggressive in putting its thumb on the scale uh, around which candidates are let out, um, and, and basically setting the stage by maybe putting out. And this is hard to 
you know, to, 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 to dissect, but putting out one candidate who probably is going to have a lot of support and extremely qualified and maybe another candidate or two who may, so, so basically helping select the winner. Yeah, the and, there, and, there, and there are cases or, you know, in, instances where, um, you know, a judge may have ruled against a senior legislator and was running unopposed and no complaints, highly qualified by the bar, and all of a sudden JMSC finds that person unqualified. And we have examples of that? Yes. Hmm. Okay. I mean, if you want to – I mean, it's just, <laughs> I'm, have you talked publicly about it? I mean, I yeah, don't know. No, I have not heard that. Yeah, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about Judge Russo. Um, this was a couple years back. He uh, ran an unopposed. Florence. Right? Yep. Florence. And um, there was a, a civil matter where um, a, I believe it was a $7 million verdict was in question. And um, a lawyer legislator had not been part of that trial until it was uh, the the $7 million verdict came into question. Then that senior lawmaker came into the picture. Uh, Judge Russo, uh, I guess in his case, made the unfortunate choice of sticking with his decision and ruling against the lawyer legislator. Three weeks later, Judge Russo is unqualified and no longer a judge. Didn't that judge also, though, have some complaints from the public? I mean, could it not be? I don't know all the details of this, but I do believe there were complaints about him from the public as well, or from from non. I would imagine most judges would well, have. They some are, co- but you know, I mean, and, right, but the but point of the, the yeah. screening committee is to take into consideration those things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you're saying, just to clear the air here, you're saying filing had opened. He had no opposition. He was running unopposed. Yeah. Okay. All right. We we'll dig a little bit deeper. I want to ask one of my one of my most profound memories of judicial selections was the family court judge who was running unopposed, and Glenn McConnell took the floor of it came out of screening. Glenn I think McConnell. This person took was from the Conway, floor, I think. Took the floor of the joint assembly and basically got that guy defeated. Well, and then I, he ran. He filed again. He filed again, and he won. And but he, he won. had to yeah. he had to go kiss yeah. the ring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, and now. You know, he, Glenn McConnell was a lawyer, but he didn't practice law. All right, but Wes, <laughs> you have been particularly critical. We ran this story. We did a podcast two weeks ago in front of Vincent's honors class. If you don't know it, you, you know, we talk about this every <laughs> He's podcast. He's a dedicated listener to the show. Vincent teaches an honors class. Um, and but did you say that was honors? Honors, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, he teaches it. He didn't graduate that's, from that. That's there. for but, sure. But anyway, um, we talked about this, and you have particularly um, used um, local representative Todd Rutherford as an example. Yeah. And you call him out by name. And, and, and you know, he was all over the, the news this week. We ran that story earlier. But is that an example for you of where things have gone wrong? Yeah. And um, I don't mean to pick on him in particular because yeah. the issue is not just about him. But his um, pretty flagrant abuse of this system uh, certainly helps illustrate the point. Um, I mean, the, his... Uh, there are numerous instances which the solicitors all cite, and they're, they're criminal attorneys, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on those things. I take the solicitors at their word, where it is evident that um, undue influence uh, on the part of a lawyer legislator who's on JMSC resulted in a judicial outcome that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And Re- Representative Rutherford would say, look, I'm a really damn good lawyer, and you know, if we're not going to let people be really damn good lawyers, then we're going to have a full-time legislator legislature because you can't. You can't be a full-time legislator and make a living. Alternatively, so what? What is a better? What yeah, is a better? Yeah, sure. Like? So alternatively, um, legislators shouldn't serve on JMSC, right? As as one example, and um, it would make a lot of sense to empower the executive branch with some influence over the uh, judicial 
selection process at the outset. Frankly, I think that, and I've introduced legislation, co-sponsored uh, a handful of other bills to do this. Um, you could make the governor of the JMSC. You could, uh, you know, appoint the members of the JMSC. Appoint the members of the JMSC. I mean, that would be an example. Look, the fundamentally, the we do not have an independent judicial branch in South Carolina. The the judicial branch is an appendage of the of the General Assembly because if I, you know, kind of like the Supreme Court doing the one eighty on the abortion bill. I mean, you can pick out a whole bunch of. Yeah. You know, I mean, pick but out a whole. It's bunch the only of way to solve that lifetime appointments. I mean, the federal judiciary has somewhat independent, not because of how they're appointed. In fact, many people would tell you the federal judiciary has become a political arm of whoever appoints them. But having lifetime tenure does insulate them. But if you give, but, all right, guys, all right. Yeah. Guys. <laughs> this is not before the Senate. Okay. The senator from York. I mean, when, did I one read, quick response when, when I read an article now about the federal judiciary, now. Okay. they always say who appointed them. Yeah. So I'll just say one thing: the um, if the legislature can hire and the legislature can fire, that makes the legislature the boss. Fair and that's what has to that that has to get fixed. All right, I want to move on. I want to play a clip for you, Senator. If you'll uh, turn around on the screen, we've got a lot of technology here. This is a story that was on Channel Seven News earlier this year when y'all were talking about guns. Let's play this clip, and then we'll kind of get back to you. Legislation would allow anyone who can legally possess a handgun in South Carolina to carry openly or concealed where it's allowed. Now, this push comes two years after the Open Carry with Training Act was signed into law. Well, the bill passed the House with a 90 to 30 vote in February. Under legislation, lawful firearm owners 18 and older would be allowed to carry a handgun openly or concealed in designated places. Now, it does not get rid of the state's concealed weapon permit program, but makes it optional. In the same way that the Constitution gives each of us as Americans the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, so on and so forth, so too does the Constitution vest our citizens with the right to keep and bear arms. And I've never been comfortable with the government requiring a permission slip on the way to exercising that constitutional liberty. I think we're making South Carolina more dangerous, and this bill is, 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 in light of the current gun violence statistics, not only in this state, but across the nation, to me, it's a disregard for the current environment. That was our friend, Senator Kempson, Marlon <laughs> Kempson, who's a uh, once a senator, always yeah, a senator. You're right. You're senator. Right. I know. Um, senator. But that was our, our friend, Senator Marlon Kempson and Senator Wes Clymer, our guest today. And Y'all had a pretty interesting exchange um, throughout that committee. But, Wes, we want to jump in a little bit to 2024, and guns is still on the agenda. Um, the, the two things that I see floating around, and if I've missed something, tell me. One, um, you and Harpootlian and others, the governor, really want to um, strengthen the penalties for people that are buying guns illegally. Um, and the other is this concept of open carry. Explain to our listeners what that means and where you think the ball lands by the end of the year. So uh, the, f- the first part of what you mentioned is, is um, enhancing penalties for um, illegal possession of a firearm. Okay. So in- enhancing penalties for people who are caught carrying a firearm who are already barred from doing so under the law. Um, I think if you talk to law enforcement anywhere in the state, they'll tell you that that is a really pernicious problem that has gotten much worse um, in recent years. And so we don't, as a state, have an adequate deterrent against that. And we don't have an adequate means of taking those folks off the street when they offend and reoffend and reoffend. Uh, and so those laws 
desperately need to be strengthened because, frankly, there are some people who, by by dint of their prior actions, have have rendered themselves unsafe for carrying a firearm. Sure. Right. But those are. But I would. That person is very very different from the law-abiding citizen who just wants to have a gun to protect his family or go hunting or, you know, so on and so forth. And, and, and explain to me why this first bill would have any opposition. I mean, who would be opposed to trying to do something to prohibit illegal firearm ownership? I don't know that there is opposition. Okay, to that. so will that bill pass? So those those two matters are attached to one uh, another. Okay. All right. The All bill, right. What's the other one? The bill that open came, carry. Open yeah. carry. The, the bill that came over from the House included both, right? And so that bill is now um, up for consideration in the Senate. Right. So currently in South Carolina, you can carry a concealed weapon, you get a permit, and you have some training still that right. you go through to do it. So, yeah. Okay. And, and so here, I mean, the, the General Assembly enacted a new law, I can't, was it 2020, 21 maybe, that allowed for open carry, right? Anybody can carry openly right now. Used to be, a, you had to carry it concealed. Right. Now you can just now, walk any, around. Anybody can carry a gun openly right. in South Carolina. That's been the law for several years now. Right. I haven't read any stories about so what do y'all want to do problem. so there there is an open carry law i thought the the, the bill under consideration is open carry so, so this would be open and concealed open so so you can carry a concealed weapon now with a permit with a permit right you can't con- you currently can't conceal unless you have a permit okay. currently it's it's lawful only to carry openly right but so it, so right now it is the law in south carolina that if somebody wanted to walk in you know walk around in on the sh- on the street out here in front of Lurie Life and Health with an AR-15, that's legal. We've right. had a open long gun carry forever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, with an AR-15, that can do it's a rifle. Yeah, but the thing is, but that- you can't do it with a pistol, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, I got you. So, what is you, what is your um, position? You want to have? I just because I get confused on this. You want to have open carry? Do you need a permit? No, under okay. under the legislation that's on the floor and that I support, no, you would okay. not. And the house has already passed. The house has already passed, and that right. would be the biggest change, right? Up right. until now, to carry concealed, concealed, right? You have to have training, correct? And this would say you don't have to have the training, and you can carry a pistol, yeah, uh, open as well, correct? All right. right, is it a good idea to have training for people to require training, like you do for a driver's license to drive a car and other things? So is that a bad idea? Well, I'll, I'll push back on the way you frame the question. Should people know what they're doing? Yeah. Should the government um, require that as a precondition to exercising a constitutional liberty? No. I mean, and, and if you have a problem with that, then go change the Constitution. But the Constitution says what it says. Well, the Constitution allows us to have, require training for handguns, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Well— <laughs> It doesn't say that, in the Constitution, you that, have that, a right to carry, but you. D- I mean that the government can't allow you look, to train. I would submit to you, Vincent, that, and you're you're an attorney, I'm not, but just submit to you that the Supreme Court has taken a very different tack There's on no the Second yeah. Amendment in recent years than it has yes. previously, and so that definition that you just articulated uh, could change. Well, not only has changed, and is still very much in flux. You know, for our listeners out there, you're now getting a glimpse of why Joel Lurie retired <laughs> from the city in 2016. But that's great. Though. All right, so where does the ball land, though? Yeah, Seriously, what happens, what, what which is the what day matters. That everybody's I got their own position. You're plus or minus two votes in the Senate on passing those two together. In right. Law Bowl. enforcement is in favor of the first one, but they're still not behind you on the second one. Is that correct? Depends on who you talk to. Okay, Sheriff's Association. Sheriff's Association has never been a fan of constitutional carry, um, but— 
and I don't want to put words into, but into they're their mouth. But they've taken a position on they, this. They have maintained a neutral position on this. And, and, right, and police I'm, chiefs. Hang on one second, Vincent. Police chiefs? I don't believe they're. I think they're opposed. And Chief Keel. Chief Keel, I Upset. believe, is still opposed. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's, no, he's I'm, against, just, yeah. I'm just trying to kind of put them all now? together. Right. Yeah. Um, our other states have already passed this. Yeah. How many other states? Do you know? I believe it's 27. I could be mistaken on that point, but it is a, it's it, a, it, number it, it is a majority of states. And in those states, um, there's there's not an appreciable increase in gun I, violence I, as a consequence well, of having passed this. And I do bring that up just, just because, although I probably wouldn't have voted for this if I was still in the Senate, sometimes I think our friends on on our former side of the aisle, Joel, um, do kind of create this parade of horribles that tends not to come into reality. I mean, the parade of horribles was preached on the Senate floor ad infinitum uh, when the when the Senate considered whether to allow people to carry openly without a permit. And well, that's that not just, to that, say— That just hadn't come to pass. And that that's not to say that horrible things happened. don't happen with guns, right. because they do. We saw that this week. They sure. do happen. Yeah. But this, this whole— Concealed weapon training thing, I don't think it's really been a part of that. I, I don't disagree with that. And, you know, I probably am more to the left on guns than you are, Vincent. But I, I, my friend Leon Lott's one of my best friends, our sheriff. We've been friends for 30 years. And he tells me all the time the problem with the crimes he has are the problem with illegal guns. Guns being bought and sold on the street. Um, and, and that's where, you know, I'm just curious— well, that's if, this felon in possession yeah, statute if, that we're talking about. Yeah, if, that's if, a way to crack down. If there on are that. things that can do that, Wes, um, we are kind of coming to a little bit of a close. I just want to shotgun with you a couple of issues coming up for next year, and just get your sense on whether they make it to the finish line. Our friend, good friend Tom Davis, um, has been you know tirelessly working on medical marijuana. He got it out of the Senate, got it out of the House, what two years ago, and then we had that very unusual ruling where. Um, Speaker Lucas stepped away, and Speaker Pro Tem Tommy Pope ruled that that bill should have started in the House because it had some financial stuff on it. Does that make it to the finish line again? Is that bill still in the Senate, or did y'all ever get it back out over to the House? Um, it is still in the Senate. Okay. Uh, there was an effort made to uh, get it up for debate in the last session, yeah. and that effort failed for a variety of reasons unrelated to the substance of the bill. Uh, but I suspect that if if it comes up again in the Senate this year, it'll pass. Good. And then I really would not know how to ballpark its chances in the in the House. Fair enough. Hate crimes. A lot of talk about hate crimes. My good friend Daryl Jackson has been one of my best friends for 40 years. He and I talk a lot about this. And all disclosure, I'm a big proponent of this, of, as, uh, of hate crime legislation as a regional board member for the Anti-Defamation League. It's been sitting on the calendar now for over a year with a few objections. Do you think the Senate will just take a straight up and down vote on this? Or do you think the objections won't remove their names? That seems unlikely. Does it? Yeah. Uh, that's unfortunate, but I appreciate your honesty. And what about tax reform? Your fellow financial planner, good friend of mine, Sean Bennett, mm -hmm. really hates when we tinker with the tax code. He feels like we tinker here, we tinker there, and he, he has continuously talked, Vincent, about comprehensive tax reform. Does the legislature ever have the stomach to really do that? It ought to. Um you know, I checked in on the the status of of you know revenues for the next year's budget a couple of weeks back, and it looks like revenues are probably stronger than a lot of people would expect, given the condition of the economy. And so, 
the fact that the General Assembly will Economy's have, booming, man. Yeah, the, you know, but, but the, the fact you that- You know what I call it? It's the Biden McMaster economy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, Governor Haley, who, who, who is your, you know, who who we all know well, and, um, you know, sir with Vincent and I, of course, they ran against each other, but she just did not like it when I'd go to the floor of the Senate and talk about the Obama-Haley economy. <laughs> I can see how that might not have been her favorite. I don't know. She loved to talk about Barack Obama when, when we ran against each other for governor. So no, no major tax reform. You don't no, think. I wouldn't say no. Okay. No, I mean I think because revenues are coming in strong enough, that creates um, enough latitude to to go after. Okay. All yeah. right, Wes. We've talked about um, CON. We talked about medical marijuana. We talked about judicial reform, hate crimes tax reform and guns, any other hot button issue that's coming up next year. Let's talk about, before we leave, that you alluded to it, but CON reform, briefly tell our listeners what happened and how that's going to change things in South Carolina. Okay, so certificate of need was a government-mandated permission slip that required anybody who wanted to invest in a healthcare facility to get that permission slip from the government, and then anybody else in the healthcare industry could take that certificate to court and fight about it, it for a long time. Sure. Decades, yeah. right? And so... That, that served as a real impediment to investment in healthcare facilities and equipment. Uh, the General Assembly repealed that. And you were a big supporter of that change. Yeah, that yeah, we was, saw you. We, in fact, yep, aired a story about this in our last episode where you were at the bill signing. Because this goes back to my early days. Yeah, but, but that has been repealed. It kind of phases in, doesn't it? Well, it is repealed completely for uh, everything except um, acute care hospitals. Okay. So all the smaller projects you set to get approved. Yeah, outpatient. Al- no, outpatient surgery centers you can right. do right now. Right. Uh, equipment, no CON anymore. The only thing left is in 2027, um, that is when repeal happens for large hospitals. And so uh, because the General Assembly repealed the Certificate of Need law, um, South Carolina will likely receive tens of billions of dollars in capital investment in healthcare that would have otherwise been thwarted by the certificate. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Our biggest concern has always been not access to care here, but in the in, in more of the rural areas. Yeah. And, and maybe it'll be interesting to see if, if, if that moves the needle on that. Wes, anything we've left out on all those issues, any other big hot button issue that you see, and there's always something nobody knows about that just pops up and becomes... Will you, you talk know, about abortion for, you know, two-thirds of the session again, or...? I would be surprised if that comes We're up done again because the, the, the court recently upheld the, the heartbeat law. You think yeah. the, the legislature's satisfied with where we're at? I Yes. I, most I, of the legislature. Most of the, most of the legislature is, and um, I, I just don't see the political will to, to right, move on. Enough. Last question. Wes Clymer, it has been so much fun talking to you, but you, your wonderful wife, Marty, who I look forward to, I was just doing the math, and, and you have five children— <laughs> And you are in your eighth year, and your oldest one is 12, which means your oldest one was four when you ran for the Senate, and you've had um, several more since then. How in the world did you convince your wife, let's have five children, I'm going to Columbia three days a week? <laughs> well, I had to do the convincing about the Columbia piece, and she had to do the convincing about the huge family. Fair I enough. Love it. That's great. You're, but we got just amazing children, and it's uh, been an extraordinary blessing. Thank you for joining that. Bourbon in the Back Room, Wes Clymer. Thank you for these incredible bottles of rum. I can't wait to, uh, to, to enjoy those more and take them home. And a final toast, Vince Shaheen. Cheers. To our friend. West Climber. Bourbon in the back room. We will be right back. Thanks, guys. Vincent, you know, when we were in the Senate, I really enjoyed working with the South Carolina Realtors Association. They really helped me better understand my community. It's true, Joel. They also helped us a lot with our constituents. And by the way, my son is a realtor. And I'm very proud of your son. He also used to be a director of the podcast. (laughs) Vincent, they 
tend to lend their expertise, their, their knowledge of the local real estate market is extremely valuable in helping us understand what's going on. It's true, Joel. And also, remember, we were in the Senate. They were a very powerful voice to ensure that policies supporting property rights and the promotion of fair housing practices occurred. Those are things they care about. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why, Vincent, we are pleased to have the South Carolina Realtor Association as a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Back Room. We'll be right back. Joel, I forgot you didn't get to serve with Senator Clymer. So this was really your first time having a conversation with him. What'd you think? Great rum. <laughs> Definitely great rum. But actually, no. Definitely and also, I, I've heard from you and um, Daryl and and other friends of mine um, on the other side of the aisle that Wes is is a, is a good guy. He's smart. He comes prepared. And I think that's what we saw today. You know, his his views on things and mine probably will line up on some issues and, and not on others. But I think the Senate is well served by having a guy like Wes Clymer there because he, from what I can tell— he doesn't take any of this personal. He has his views, but he's also fun to debate. Hell, just watching you him debate was turning my stomach, making me so happy I wasn't in the Senate anymore. I think he sized him up pretty well. I remember when he won um, because Wes Hayes and I were very close. Sure. I worked with him a lot of education issues. And, of course, I was I was sad when, when he was not reelected. But I remember Wes Hayes coming to the Senate and talking to us about how we should work with Wes Clymer, that he was a guy. And to me, that just said a lot about both of them. And then, of course, when when Wes Clymer got there, it reminded me of when Katrina Sheely was elected. You remember when Katrina got elected, she had been so close to Governor Haley. And so she looked at me like I was some just evil person. And then after about a month, she came over and was like, you're pretty good guy. Yeah. Well, it didn't take Wes that long, and he didn't look, never looked at me as I was evil. But I could tell when he got there, um, after a while, he came over and we began talking and, and really had a great relationship. He is very much about the issues that he cares about. There are not a lot of side agendas and not a lot of self-promotion, which, no. as you know, is rare in what we do. And I always appreciated that and always had a good time with him in the Senate. You know, and he, listen, he's, for a guy that's been there, what, seven years yeah. now, he's leading the charge on important issues. You know, it's interesting, Vince, and I was thinking about this earlier and trying to figure out, and maybe you can help with this. In 2016, Haley got involved in really three races. And and. I couldn't quite understand why she got involved in Wes Clymer's race. Right. Uh, perhaps maybe they they were friends. But I kind of got the feeling that, you know, she was taking on Rankin, and yeah. she knew she probably wouldn't win that. She was taking on Leatherman, yep. and she knew she she probably wouldn't win that. And she probably wanted to put her stamp on a race, and she saw an opportunity to support somebody more conservative than the incumbent, and that definitely defines Wes Clymer. And she got involved in that, as he indicated, and um, and— you know he's he's been a um, he's been a very successful public servant as a result, staying on his own two feet. And I think when he came in, let's face it, a lot of the members of the Senate weren't big Nikki Haley fans, but he's right. come in and made right. a lot of friendships, well, he, and he's done a good job. Yeah, he realized quickly that there was more to life than uh, than the governor in South Carolina. In fact, there's a lot more in life. There's the South <laughs> Carolina Senate, which probably has equal power. Should the legislature, which has equal power, if not more. And the best thing about Wes Clymer is he came in with four bottles of liquor. Wes, yeah. thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I will I will close it the way I opened it. What'd you think? Great run. <laughs> Bourbon in the Back Room, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bourbon in the Back Room is produced by Jonathan Valladares, Campbell Douglas, and Austin Shaheen, directed by Holly Van Horn.